Good morning. My name is Emily, and we are going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. If you have a blue Bible under your seat, it's on page 166. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this with you. This is our gift to you. All right, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. Good morning. How are we doing? My name's Josh. I'm a pastor here, the pastor currently, um, and I get to preach this text. A, a few pictures just from our men's retreat. Uh, just to give you, as a, say, we actually went where we said we were going. We were up north in a very dingy little cabin. There is our boy Cody teaching us. We brought about 50 guys. Uh, next picture. Now there's us killing it in the game of wiffle ball and spike ball. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, that's all we got right there. That's uh, good <laughs> enough. Uh, what's interesting is your church, especially new church, you want to grow, like numerically, obviously. But as I went to a men's retreat, the thing that I was struck by is, because I know the majority of the stories of the guys, there's been growth in each of our guys through suffering, through stuff they wouldn't choose to want to go through through their own sort of commitment to the Lord. But our, our men are growing. That's not to say the women aren't growing, but just be encouraged that the men of this church are trying to faithfully follow Jesus. And most guys, whatever their exterior says, their interior says, I don't think I'm quite measuring up. And I just want to tell us as a church family, like our guys are taking the steps of faith to be the men that God has called them to be. And it's just a, it was a beautiful thing to kind of see face, name, story, in the growth over the last 12 months in this guy. Face, name, story, growth over the last 12 months. So it was just sweet uh, to be there. Pray that they all get back safe. Uh, so they should be coming back, rolling in soon. So. But we get to sort of wrap up Solomon here. Next, Solomon's dead at this sermon, at the end of the sermon. Next week, we're going to wrap up the series with, all right, what did we learn, Israel? But I want to set us up with this, just to remind us who Solomon is. This is not what Emily read, but go to 1 Kings chapter 10. And I want to remind us of who Solomon was. Biblically, historically, what he was known for. 
and then we're going to dive into the last lesson he has to give us. So 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, this is just sort of a summary statement on who the man was. Now when the queen of Sheba, a very impressive character herself, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices, very much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. The most impressive woman around has her breath taken away by Solomon, mainly because he could answer every question she had. And then you turn the page, chapter 11, Solomon turns from the Lord, which is what we're going to read today, which here's Solomon's final lesson for us, if I had to summarize. All the wisdom in the world can't fix our deepest problem. Like, you may be very intelligent, you may be wealthy, you may be up and to the right in every aspect of life. I hope that's true of a lot of you, but that does not fix our deepest problem. Solomon was smarter than us, richer than us, more resourced than us. He had far more at his disposal than any of us. And one chapter later, it says, and Solomon turned from the Lord. Our deepest problem will never be fixed by wisdom alone. This book is the smartest book ever given to humans. And it wants us to remember that wisdom is not our problem. We have a bigger, deeper, more robust problem than not having answers to questions. We've got something inside of us that's twisted. So here's the two questions I want Solomon to answer for us. What is our deepest problem? And then what is our only hope? This is Solomon's final lesson to us. What is our deepest problem? And what is our final hope? So I wanted to stop and pause and pray and just give us each space to sort of ask God to do what he's going to do. So would you pray with me? God, we all walk in here with varying levels of success and failure upon us now. And now we enter into the story to see one of the greatest successes this world has ever known, followed up by a reminder that the failure in Solomon is in all of us. So God, that, I pray that the playing ground is leveled for all of us. There would be a humility as we leave here. I pray there would be a heaviness to the things that get brought up to each of us. And there'd be a desire to have Jesus be the solution to those areas of life, God. Thank you for this church. Thank you for just a, another Sunday where we get to gather with new people and old people and people that have been here since the beginning and people may be brand new to church and we get to sit under your word. God bless us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is our deepest problem? I'll just give you the answer on the front end, and then I'll show you it through Solomon. So our deepest problem is this. It's idolatry that turns us away from the Lord. Solomon's biggest issue was not a wisdom issue. It was an idolatry issue. Your biggest issue is not your mother-in-law, is not your bank account, is not your boss, is not your kid. It's your idolatry. My biggest issue is not anything going on in the church, it's what's going on inside of me. And we see that 
with Solomon. And I want to walk through sort of three areas where we see idolatry. Just to give you, those of you that are note takers, where is the idolatry? We're going to see this. There's an idolatry in us. It's our flesh. It's our heart. There's an idolatry around us. It's the world. As soon as we step out, there's idolatry ever. And there's an idolatry that just surrounds us perpetually because there is a Satan and there is a spiritual realm that is working to pull us away from the Lord. There's an idolatry in us, around us, and there's idolatry that surrounds us. But here's the first one I want to look at through the life of Solomon, is the idolatry in us. So what Emily read, I want to read this together again, verse 1, I want to read down to verse 8, and just hear the descriptions of Solomon, who just prior, in the prior chapter, was described as the man who takes breath away. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 8, how is Solomon now described? Let's read this together. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. He takes her breath away. And now he's described like this. I just want to walk through and say all the verbs that were used to describe. Verse 1 says, he loved many foreign women. Verse 2, he clung to them in love. Verse 3, they turned his heart away. Verse 4, they turned his heart away after other gods. Verse 5, he went after. Verse 6, he did not wholly follow the Lord. Verse 7, the culmination of all is he then builds a high place, a place of worship for a false god. The wisest man to ever live in the description of him in the chapter that is the end of his life is all about his heart. And what's going on inside. Which just is a reminder for us, the sin that we do, the actions, the things that are, make more publicity in our lives, in the lives of others, like isn't the main issue. It's what's going on in here that no one sees. And with Solomon, there's this like gradual, he loved women. And then he clings to these women. Picture like his hands coming off of the Lord and now clinging to woman after woman after woman. After all, and then his heart is completely turned away from the Lord. And his next step is walking away from the Lord and building another place to worship another God. He is an idolater. He has idolatry in his heart. Now, some of you, like, if you didn't grow up in church, idolatry is sort of an old school. It's like what you read about when you're in fourth grade history, like all the idols of this culture and this culture and this culture. It's not necessarily used in modern day language. Like, you don't, unless you've got a weird family and you just use weird church language, but... What are the idols in your heart, son? Dad, I don't know what you're talking about. But what is idolatry? Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author out of New York, has one of the best definitions. He says this. This is idolatry. 
An idol is anything. Just stop right there. It could be anything. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not neutral. It could be any of those things. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Dr. Tim Keller. We all got that problem. Because this world is nice in ways, and it's fulfilling in ways. Anything, anything, anything that takes your heart and turns towards another thing and then clings to it and grabs hold of it is an idol in your life. And it's a problem we all have. And I just want to make a few notes off the text. Verse 4, and this is for a sect group in this church right now, the older people. Verse 4 says this, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after others. So idolatry is not a young man's problem, a young woman's problem. Idolatry, you don't grow out of it. You either deal with it or it's going to take you out now or like Solomon in old age. Like Solomon stumbles to the finish line of life. I picture his face hitting the ground, reaching out and missing the finish line by just a couple inches (laughs) in his old age. So all the older folks in our church, like the game's not over until the game's over. In his old age, I don't get many opportunities to stand as a younger than you man and sort of exhort you, but I want to exhort you. The game is not over until it's over. And Solomon reminds us, you could fall flat, not in a salvation way, and then you're punted off to hell, but in a, I did right by the Lord till the end. Idolatry is a young man's game, an old man's game, and any man's game, and any woman's game. It's in all of us. But here's the other thing that's interesting, just off this text. Idolatry is in all of us, but it can't be easily diagnosed in any of us. Like Solomon, what are your idols? Author of this. What are Solomon's? It doesn't say. And he did this because he had an idol of sexual pleasure. He did this because he has an idol of control. It doesn't, it just lists his life, what he does, how he did not listen to the Lord, and then the results of this. So idolatry is in all of us. It affects us all uniquely. But like, what are the idols in Solomon? You don't really know perfectly. Like some, some people kind of break down all idols into these sex, money, power, or instead of sex, relationships. And with Solomon, you could see all those sex. Yeah, he had a thousand women to do whatever he wanted to sexually. Money, it also says he accumulated stuff. That's part of what these marriages benefited him. He got the gold from these various cultures. And power, he was the most powerful man in the Middle East, and he was sleeping with all the most powerful women of the Middle East. So which is it, Solomon? What's your idol? Joshua, what's your idol? None of us can nail it down to one. But as Christians, I'll say it this way, as mature Christians, you've got to be able to say, like, these are the things tugging at my heart. These are the idols that I've got to be aware of so that in old age I finish well. What are your idols? So I want to go through a list, and you can take a picture of the screen. But Tim Keller, he goes on to talk about idolatry, and he wants you to be able to 
diagnose your heart. But what is the idolatry in you right now? There's a list. Very depressing. It'll get better. <laughs> My gosh, I am all of the idols. But here's how he would have you diagnose your heart with this statement. Life has meaning. I only have worth if I have Life has full meaning. I feel worthy. I have worth if I have power and influence over others. It's a power one. Or if I am loved and respected by, I have this kind of pleasure experience in a particular quality of life, the comfort idol, which I think more and more is just like, it's in all of us. We just got to admit it. I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Control idolatry. All you parents of young kids, just put your name there. That's one of the deals. This is the one. These are the people that can build a church for you and you could crush them. The people that are are dependent on me and they need me, the helping idolatry. They do amazing work for churches and nonprofits. But often it's at the altar of idols of being needed. Someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. There's a dependency idolatry. Or the opposite. I am completely free, this is more me, from obligations or responsibilities to take care of anyone. The independence. Right in America, 2022. I am highly productive in getting a lot done. The work idolatry. Josh Watt cosine. I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, the achievement idolatry. I have a certain level of worth or wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions, the materialism idol. I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplishing its activities, the religion idolatry. This one person in my life is happy to be there and he's happy to be with me or she's happy to be with me, the individual person idolatry. Single people, dating people. That person will not do all that you think he or she will do for you. This is one of mine. I come from a broken home and I thought, you know what, marriage. I'm going to do it better than my parents. And I picked the greatest girl in the world. She's mine, she's taken, so she's up. And I was like, this is it. In a moment in our marriage, a couple years in, we're like, we weren't fighting, but we were missing. And we both realized, like, we're clinging too tight to this thing. Like, this is great And it's honorable, but it's not the end thing. It's a gift given to both of us to enjoy rightly. It's not an idol to build our life around. Um, If I feel totally independent of organized religion and I have a self-made morality, the irreligion idolatry, my race and my culture is ascendant and I'm recognized as superior, the racial or cultural idolatry. This is a big one, especially in our church setting in any growing setting. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in, the inner ring idolatry. You feel it? All of us feel it in some way. Well, they're having conversations over there. If I could just get in those conversations. Well, just so you know, I've been in a lot of those conversations, and there's other conversations. It never ends. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole article about this. Like, I'm not in the inner ring. There is no inner ring. There's always another ring to get into, socially. College kids. There's never a final landing spot. 
There's always another re. It's idolatry. My children, my parents are happy with me. Family idolatry. Good luck with that. <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Relationship idolatry. Here's one that's going to sting a little, but I'm hurting. I'm in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. The suffering idolatry. If you are suffering, then that's, that's when I'm good. And it's like, how dare you call out my suffering? I'm not calling out your suffering. I'm calling out suffering idolatry if that's you. Like your worth is found in being the fastest to the bottom in all social settings. My political or social cause, this doesn't really pertain to us. I'll just skip the political stuff. <laughs> idolatry. Both sides. And then the easiest one, I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image. Idolatry. Which of those are yours? Here's what's funny with like medical stuff nowadays. I think it would be terrible. Jake's in here somewhere, Maddox. He's a doctor. Like all the doctors have to deal with us morons that show up to their office with Google like, you know what I think I have? I have plantar fasciitis, Dr. Maddox. He's like, no, you have obesity. You're too big. Like, what if we showed up to our counselors, our pastors, with some knowledge of, like, the idols? Like, here's what I think I have. Rather than all this other medical stuff that you should just let the paid people deal with. This stuff you can't export to paid people. You got to do the, what idols are in my heart? Do some work. If you're in RC, you're going to talk through all these, so you'll talk through it even more. Idolatry is in us. Every single one of us. There's not a single exception to that rule. Except for Jesus Christ, who always had his Father's will at the top of his heart. But here's the second reason why idolatry is just, you can't escape it. There's idolatry all around us. It's in the world. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Just a reminder of all the people involved with the idolatry that grabbed Solomon. Solomon loved many foreign women. How many? Well, the daughter of Pharaoh, that's Egypt, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidians, the Hittites, from all the nations around him. Stop right there. When Solomon walks out of his Jerusalem kingdom, what are his options? He has every culture around him to choose from. And just to give you a rundown, Egypt's southwest of him. Moab's southeast of him. Ammon is northeast of him. The Hittites are northwest of him. Edom is east of him. And Sidon is north of him. Wherever he turns, there's options of idols that other cultures provide i'm glad we don't live in a world where when we step out we have cultures and cultural idols to choose from wherever we go whatever screen we're looking at whatever we're doing there's an option to choose from i think part of why solomon's written into the bible is to be sort of a hyperbole he's like the most grandiose version of all of us he's not like the the rich guy exception He's the, if you had all this, you would walk out and you'd go to the east and you'd do what they do and you go to the north and you'd do it, you would do exactly this. Why? Because there's idols all around us. God had a solution. Do not marry foreign women. For in so doing, they will turn your heart away from the Lord. So this is not the sermon. This is just a side point. But I get questioned a lot. We got, you know, single people. Can I date a non-Christian? They never usually use non-Christian. There's like a, can I date this guy? I don't care. What, 
well, what's his face? Well, he's got a, his mom led a VBS 20 years ago. And he went to a VBS 12 years ago. What are you asking me? What you're asking is, is it right for a Christian to date a non-Christian? So here's your, your three-part solution. Ask people, and I'm going to tell you no. Ask other people. See what they say. The second thing is, well, then go to God's word. New Testament says, don't be unclean. We read Solomon here. It did not end well because his heart turns towards the things. It's like, here's how the Bible points it. The Christian does not influence the non-Christian in an intimate relationship. It's the opposite. And then the third thing is, do you want to obey God? Yes or no? And just answer those questions. What if people told me, well, Josh, Pastor Josh said no. Okay, well, let me search his word. Okay, it seems like there's some hints that he might be right. And then third question is, do I want to obey God? Yes or no? Just to keep it as simple as possible, because we got a lot of people dating. So we've had this conversation. We can have it again, but I'll send you a clip of this YouTube down the road when you come back and ask me. But we do not intermarry. We do not inter. Why? Because we're watching it. You get influenced in the wrong direction. How does it even end? Like verse 7 through verse 8. This is how it ends for Solomon. This is the, should I, you know, the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, should I, should I not? Verse 7. Here's Solomon's end game. He builds a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their He takes his resources and he lays them at the altar of false gods. How did that start? With a cute girl who batted her eyes. He's like, oh, what's the worst that's going to happen? And the end of his life is him building altars to wrong gods. Why? Because there's idols everywhere we turn. It's a depressing thought to think that way, but that's just the truth. Like there's options everywhere that are false God options. And Solomon's showing us, like, this is how I, like I was thinking, how do you, it's kind of depressing, like, how do I even navigate? Here's one way I think about it, is don't think about the world in terms of good and bad. There is good and bad. But like for you personally, as you go out and you think about the dating question or whatever, it's more like, is this going to turn my heart to the Lord? Or is this going to turn my heart from the Lord? Because that's a much harder question. You, you got to kind of sit in that a little bit. My, my retirement plan that I want to pursue. Is this turning my heart to the Lord? This new job opportunity, is it turning my heart to the Lord? This dating relationship. She's a Christian. She's turning my heart to the Lord, from the Lord. Because we're watching Solomon show that the easy default mechanism of the human heart mixed with the cultural idols of our world, we're all getting turned away from the Lord. All the time. It's like a conveyor belt that's moving us all in a direction that is not in our best interest. And finally, idolatry surrounds us. What I mean by that is in the unseen world, namely Satan and his demons. So what do we make of Solomon building this altar for Chemish, who's a real God, for these other real things that people worship back there? Like, what are these gods that Solomon is worshiping? I give three options. 
They're just figments of the imagination of the people of this day and age, and they're morons, and we're way smarter, and we don't do stuff like that. Maybe. Doubtful. Or the more Eastern answer is they're all gods. Like, it's a polytheistic world. And the Jewish God, this is the battle of all the Jews in the Old Testament. It's like, Yahweh, and this one, and this one, and this one. That's why Yahweh is always kicking the butts of these other ones. to say, like, don't. They're actually, like, real gods on the same level as the creator God, Yahweh. That's an option that Eastern religions hold to. Or, what I think the Bible would say is they're gods. They're spiritual beings at force, working to pull Solomon's heart away from the Lord. And there are spiritual beings working against what God wants in your life and pulling you closer and closer. Satan, demons, the spiritual realm, whatever you may call it. Just to give you an idea, Ashtoreth, one of these gods, this was the goddess of sex and fertility, and it involved worship of the stars. So orgies and what's your sign? I'm glad we're done with those days. I'm glad that's all we've graduated on. We're more sophisticated. We don't ask about signs, and we don't worship sexuality at all. The other one was cruel and violent worship, representing power, and the god of Molech involved child sacrifice. Why are those so powerful? Because there's real forces working within cultural realities, tugging on real idols in your heart and pulling you and me and pulling you and me towards false gods. My wife just read a book. I'll claim that I read it because we're one flesh. But John Mark Comer wrote a book, God Has a Name. And she said, this is a great illustration. I'm like, that is a great illustration. He talks about like universalism, all religions, whatever religion you're on, you're just walking up the same mountain. He's like, that's not right. But then Christianity has it more oversimplified, like there's one mountain and it's God and everything else is nothing. He's like, the biblical picture through the Old Testament, through texts like this, is there is a big mountain, God, Yahweh, but there are other little mountains that you can climb up to and get to the top and and enjoy the vantage point of sex and power and control and relationships and comfort. Fill in the blank, take out those names and fill in whatever your idols are. You can climb those mountains and they'll get you somewhere. They just won't get you to the top. They get you to a maybe season of fulfillment, of comfort, of identity that your parents never gave you. But unless it's the mountain named Yahweh, you will never get to where we all need to be. Solomon showed us wisdom is not our problem. Some of us need to grow in wisdom. But it's not our main problem. Worship is our main problem. We worship incorrectly. We worship the wrong things. We worship the wrong things with zeal and vigor and passion and sacrifice. That's our problem. So what is our only hope? Does Solomon give us any hope before he checks out of the sea? I want to read one verse here that's, what is our only hope? Let's read verse 9 through 13 together. Our only hope is worship that actually brings us towards the Lord. So we saw Solomon and all his stupidity. Verse 9, here's God's response. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice 
and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded, you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Here's where we got to start. Because this is a very bleak reality. There's idols in my heart, your heart. We leave here everywhere we look, everywhere we smell, everywhere we listen, there's idols pulling at us. And there's a spiritual realm working behind the scenes, wanting us to follow those idols that line up with our heart idols. There's no hope in that. Here's where you start to get hope. And it's not going to sound like hopeful, but verse 9 says this, And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Maybe you're not a Christian, and this message is like connecting some dots for you. And you're like, well, how do I go from Solomon's folly to something better? Step one, the anger of the Lord. You have to come to terms with the fact that God is angry with those things. This is not an agree to disagree situation. This is the wrath of a perfect, all-consuming fire inside the heart of God that rests on those idols in your heart and in culture and in the unseen realm. He is angry with Solomon. Where do you find hope and anger? Here's what I just want us to know. It shows that he cares. The worst dads of the people in this room, there's probably an anger element, but by and large, it's going to be a disconnected. Did they even care? And God is watching Solomon, his beloved son, go after idols, and anger boils up in him. He's angry at these things. God's anger is the first step. You don't go from idols to the good life until you pass through the door of dealing with God's wrath in your life and God's wrath in this world. But here's the other thing that just gives me comfort. God's anger sort of gives us a target, and it points at the things that we should be aware of. God, what are you mad about? He says, I'm mad at idols. He's not just flippantly angry. Like growing up, my dad would lose it if I spilled something. Like, that's not. So now as a parent, like one of the one one things I do well is I don't lose it on my kids when they spill stuff because I'm like, that's not worthy of anger. God says, your idols are worthy of his wrath and his anger. And that's not just a you thing, that's a world thing. Romans has a summary statement of how God views the world and all the idolatry in us in the world and in the satanic realm. Apostle Paul says this, for the wrath of God, the anger of God, not a fun word, but a necessary word, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Don't change it yet. Go back. Got you clean. God's like, it's obvious that somebody powerful is in charge of this and created all this. It's obvious to every person. But what do we do? Next slide. 
So we're without excuse, Redemption North Mountain. For all they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Explain that, Paul. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Translation, they took idols and they placed them on the throne of their heart, on the thrones of culture, on the thrones of the world, and they worshipped idols instead of the creator of all things. So God is angry and his wrath is being revealed and it's not done being revealed. There's coming a day where he's going to squash all the rest of the idols in the world. His anger is a good thing. But the other thing I want us to see, verse 14, he's not just angry. He's not a dad that's like furious from the back room. Verse 14, what does he do in the life of Solomon even? And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hey, dad, the Edomite. He was one of the royal house in Edom. He moves on his anger and he disciplines those he loves is what the New Testament says. So Solomon has all these idols placed around his life, his city, his nation he's in charge of. And God starts to raise up people from those various idolatrous cultures to take down Solomon. Why? Punitive, sort of flying off the handle, judgment? No, a father who's watching where his boy is going. His boy is not listening. God has enough control and power and wisdom to set up the circumstances to get his boy where his boy would not go, left to himself. So he raises up adversaries to go after Solomon. And that's exactly what happens. And in this chapter, the, the kingdom splits. Israel, the people of God, Center of the universe on this little planet Earth, placed here by God to be a light to the nations. The United Kingdom of Israel splits in this chapter. Why? Because the idols of Solomon's heart and God is too loving as a father to let him continue on and let Israel continue on and let us continue on with idols as our gods. And how does Solomon's life end? Just to show you verse 41. After the kingdom splits, God kind of explains how it's all going to go down. Verse 41 through the end of the chapter. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the books of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And then Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. God's anger goes after Solomon. And he trains him in righteousness. Here's the thing that I think I, I sort of visualize with Solomon. Assume like he wakes up one day, he's in bed with one of these women. He walks out of that door and he looks at the high place that he built. And he sees family after family coming to worship at the high place that he built. But he like comes to a census. The Bible would use the word conviction. And he's like, what have I done? What is Solomon's confidence to be able to walk back towards true worship and away from the idols that he's built up? Here's what religion says. Well, do better next time. I'll see you in seven days, and if you have your stuff together, then we'll talk about letting you back into a relationship with the almighty God of the universe. That's not how God works with Solomon. That's not how God works with us. I want you to hear the glimmer of hope 
and confidence that God gives in this story. Verse 11. And it's in the midst of punishment, but you hear God's heart through it. Verse 11 and 12. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Punishment. Verse 12, grace. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Go down to verse 33. He repeats almost the same thing with a little more color to it. But because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidians, and Chemish, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, the New Testament would use the word, but I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who kept my commandments and my statutes. Stop right there. What is Solomon's hope? That God made a promise that did not involve him to his father David. He says, I will keep that promise. And for the sake of David, who walked in my statutes. It's not your righteousness, Solomon, that gives you confidence. You don't walk back into a relationship with me with any sort of confidence because what you bring to the table. You must have the confidence of something that someone else has done. That's what Christianity is. We walk in here. Where do we get our confidence? And I want to tell you this. Jesus Christ, the finished work of what Christ did in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is the hope of the world. It's the gospel. It's the finished work. Because here's the reality. All of us are going to walk out of here and the idols are going to chirp. And they're going to talk. And to varying degrees of success, we're going to spot them and move from them. But none of us are going to come back here pure and 100% clean of all the idols. We're going to come back here about C- minus students in the air of worship. But here's the Christian confidence in this world. Jesus Christ did the work. All the work. Not you, not me, not any of us. So we can boldly come to the throne, the New Testament says, to worship now in spirit and in truth, knowing that idols are real. I want to end on just a simple little verse. The end of the book of 1 John, which we're going to teach through next year, is written by Jesus' best friend. He has all this beautiful stuff about being a new Christian, how to grow in your faith, all this. But the book ends very simply, and it's just interesting because it's basically a summary of the whole Old Testament. John says this to the church, and I say to us as we close our time, and little children, keep yourselves from idols. Period. Church, idols are real. They're in you, they're out there, they're all around us. Keep yourself from idols. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of our worship. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for saving me in spite of the many ways I turned from you, the many idols I placed in my life that I thought would give me hope or fulfillment or success or identity or approval or achievement. And God, thank you for the men and women, the young men, the young women, the the kids in this room that have experienced salvation and have begun the lifelong process of understanding the idols that do not give life they promise. And thank you for the gospel that frees us to walk in here, 
totally honest with how we've built altars and totally hopeful that you'll show up yet again because your grace never ends. So God, that's what we want in this moment even as we respond just for you to be worthy of our worship for us in a small way to give a glimmer of what the kingdom to come is going to be like where there are no idols to take our attention away but it's about you and only you. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And it's that amen.